0: Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you very much for joining us on our podcast, Grow, Grow, Grow. Today, I have uh, two wonderful people joining us Stephanie Herseth Sandlin, president of Augustana University, and her CFO, Shannon Nelson, um, executive vice president and CFO at Augustana. So, without further ado, let's get started. Um, As you all know, this is a podcast about how to grow a higher education institution. And uh, they've been very successful at Augustana in First of all, not shrinking, which is an accomplishment in your a private liberal arts college located in the Dakotas. Um, and second, actually being able to achieve growth uh, despite the substantial headwinds we often hear about in higher education, especially for liberal arts institutions. So without further ado, um, if you you know I'd, I'd be interested to know when you arrived at Augustana, what was the situation?
1: So I was hired, uh, appointed by the Board of Trustees in 2017. And I came from the private sector. I was general counsel and vice president for corporate development for a publicly traded company headquartered here in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Mm -hmm. And when I was asked to enter the process to be considered to be president, uh, I didn't know what the board, if they'd be open to a candidate like me, I didn't come up through higher education. I had experience in federal public policy. And then as a Uh, Lawyer uh, as a general counsel in a corporate environment, but it was pretty clear that the board of trustees at Augustana University, uh, Sioux Falls is the state's largest city. It is growing, it's doubled its population in the last 30 years. We're looking for a non-traditional president. And I think that with my background, Uh, in a technology and manufacturing company, where we were focused on growth, where we were focused on strategic investments, when we were focused on mergers and acquisitions, uh, as well as Shannon Nelson's background at a larger, in a larger university system at the University of Kansas, but also uh, having been in real estate development, private equity, you know, we both brought, you know, some diversified experience to the table in a way that I think a board of trustees, many of whom are business leaders themselves, recognized that the long-term strategic positioning of Augustana University needed to be to grow, to be the asset to the city of Sioux Falls, to this growing region that it had always been, and what kind of investments uh, would it take to grow both the undergraduate and the graduate population, student population, and how to do that in innovative ways. And I think, we were able to uh, surround ourselves with other people on the team, some from the Augustana University community, some from other institutions, some from outside of higher education, where we just got people to think differently about it. We got them to, when I came here, there was sort of a, a little bit of skepticism and scarcity, right, A skepticism about what the future looks like and scarcity, because we had had an enrollment decline three years in a row, and we were still feeling the effects of that at the undergraduate level. And Shannon and I worked very well together uh, with other campus colleagues and with the board to make some really hard decisions uh, to balance our budgets and to start making some strategic investments based on a risk appetite uh, that we knew had to be a bit uh, more expansive. Uh, And we got the best ideas from across campus as well in hosting 18 different ideation sessions in the spring of 2018 that I facilitated all of them and got, and we capped the number in the group at 20. And it was to think out to 2030, don't be bogged down in your current fiscal uh, annual budget. And don't be thinking about just next year, you really need to, I learned this at Raven, you know, in product development, market development, you gotta be looking out five, seven, 10 years to get people thinking differently about the future and what might be possible, building on our strengths, building on a foundation, but also talking about what maybe we should stop doing, right? Uh, that just wasn't having the same return on investment. And even using those terms was not something that was welcome by some audiences on campus, but yet uh, when we would speak about what differentiates us, both for the student's academic experience, academic experience, as well as the residential campus experience and the role of technology for all of us as the ground was shifting beneath our feet. I think people felt somewhat liberated to be dreaming out to 2030. Many of them have children or grandchildren who would possibly be in college in 2030 and could see how they were learning and what the K-12 through 12 environment was informing. But again, a lot of us either new to Augustana or within this community, um, bringing the business background to ask questions differently. And if our colleagues on campus couldn't answer why we do this the way we do, or why are we doing this very effectively, then we knew we had to go deeper. Uh, And there might be some opportunity there to make some change in terms of maturing process, um, budgeting, and investments to help make some of that work a bit easier as well.
0: So you mentioned, sounds like you had a a fair change out in management, what roles did you actually switch out?
1: So when I went to a new President's Institute in my first year, I was maybe uh, four or five months into my new role. And I was told by other current presidents or retired presidents that you you have to dance with the team you inherit. And often you don't, it, it can take three to five years, right? For some of those people to adapt to your leadership style, or they might choose to retire, or move on. You make mm-hmm. changes. Well, that to me seemed, um, I didn't think that that three to five years was going to work for me, but I also had the good fortune that a number of the vice presidents were looking to retire. They wanted to help ensure a smooth transition. Uh, but three of them uh, were certainly looking to retire. And that allowed me to make more changes in the first 18 months of my first term as president than perhaps other presidents have had um, the ability to do. And I felt that the investment in search firms, utilizing the same consultant that ran the search for the president, this person knew me, they'd gotten to know Augustana, the board was very supportive, Some of the trustees were involved in the interviewing process when Shannon was in the the candidate pool uh, for our CFO position. And our first search there, we tried to do on our own. And we we didn't settle. We knew we didn't find the right person. And that's when we engaged the search firm. And we were really fortunate uh, that Shannon, you know, and he can speak to that, why he would move from the University of Kansas and what he saw as the opportunity um, for growth Here at Augustine.
0: Interesting. So, CFO was one of those changes.
1: Yes. Um, Any others? Yes. uh, The vice president for advancement, uh, the vice president for student affairs, and I had an interim uh, vice president for academic affairs. And that was who the faculty wanted me to focus on first. So, we started a search, and I knew I might want to change the academic structure, and we can talk with you more about that. Um, That was something I I was pretty clear would need to happen as we grew into this promise of what a university provides, uh, as we had changed the name of the university in 2016, that we needed to reevaluate the academic structure. So we found Dr. Colin Irvin, who I know you've had a chance to talk with as well. And one of the things he was attracted to at Augustana was the fact that I was a non-traditional president, um, that we had this academic reputation. excellence and rigor that we were located in a growing city of Sioux Falls and that we could maybe do things differently and be more innovative Uh, and then when he was able to meet some of the faculty leaders as well as then being joined by Shannon uh, about nine months after Colin joined the team and then being really well served in our executive team by two alumni um, who had been involved with Augustana governance in different capacities Over the years, it's just the five of us have been, I think, a strong team working with many of our other administrator and faculty colleagues on the president's cabinet and the president's council. So both Colin and Shannon joined after these ideation sessions, but the board by that time was willing to endorse a set of working goals, right, aspirational goals for this longer strategic planning process. And then they came in to help kind of manage that. Navigate the rocky waters of, of what that meant for some detractors in our campus community as well as our alumni base, really more along one or two areas uh, than the whole plan, because so many people have been involved in the ideation piece. Mm-hmm. And we were very transparent. We made a lot of information available. We had town hall meetings. We we weren't hiding the ball. And it was an organic, ground-up process, but informed by sort of my research my vision after I had taken you know, the nine to 12 months to build really important context and relationships on campus.
0: Well, and very much a vision of the future as well.
1: Yes. Um,
0: so uh, Shannon, tell me a little bit about what happened on the financial side. Um, obviously walked into an unbalanced budget and declining enrollment. Um, so most colleges hunker down in that situation and cut budgets and hope for the best. Uh, What did you do?
2: Thanks, Bob. Um, So I think what attracted me to Augustana, like Stephanie pointed out, is when they were recruiting me to come here, the the foundation of the strategic plan or the vision was in place. And it was based upon growth. Again, it was based on growth, grow academic programs, grow and improve the infrastructure, grow and improve campus. Uh, you know, grow enrollment. the the whole The whole piece of that was about growth. So, um, Stephanie also mentioned the openness to innovation. So, I think what I saw at Augustana is is our financial model was like a lot of universities, including the one I was at, where um, the fund. The fund accounting structure is challenged, meaning, depending on the year, it, it mm-hmm. depends on which fund you're needing to kind of pull from to help you get through that fiscal year or make it into the next year, versus what I think are the two strengths of a university's financial model. One is you have to have an investment uh, component to your financial model. And that's what we mean by grow. What are we going to invest in to how are we gonna grow? And the second piece of it is you have to leverage your, your existing revenue levers. Um, you have to figure out which ones you can leverage and which ones you can't to support those investments. And those, in my opinion, are the two secrets of how how you grow. So. It's through investments and leveraging uh, your revenue levers. And so revenue levers, as you know, Bob, at a small private um, is enrollment, Then um, it's auxiliaries. And I think that that's a piece that when, when you have a stagnant or declining uh, revenue model, I think the first inclination is what should we cut? What should we eliminate? Um, rather than what should we invest in and what should we leverage. Um, And so that's the approach that we took. Um, We tried to identify three or four programs um, that we could invest in to help improve our enrollment and our revenue levers. Um, And so you talked about specifics that maybe we'll Uh, get When
0: you said programs, that can mean a lot of things, IT programs. Did you mean academic programs or more yeah. or general use of the word programs?
2: Yeah, I think it means academic programs. Like, like you said, I think you continually have to innovate what your academic programs are. I think it also comes down to auxiliaries. And, and so how do you grow and invest in your housing? Obviously, housing is a large revenue generator for a lot of universities. And again, the piece that attracted me to Augustana is where Augustana is predominantly a residential campus. Uh, Mm -hmm. Over 70% of our students live on our campus. So that gives us a lever to leverage, right? Um, We also were exploring how we can expand our music program. Um, Stephanie and her team did a great job of this vision of how we were going to implement a school of music. Again, there's a lot of opportunities that come through that. And the other element of the strategic plan with athletics and what we were going to do to grow and excel in athletics and how to attract students um, through athletics as well.
0: Where did the money come from for these investments?
2: Yeah. So the
1: money, oh, go ahead. No, go
2: ahead, Stephanie. Go ahead.
1: Well, the money, and I'll let Shannon fill in the gaps. It was a combination of finding savings and we did do an early retirement incentive plan for during COVID uh, because we, there was so much uncertainty and we had some, we identified 25 eligible faculty members and uh, 17 of the 25 took the program. And we actually developed the program with their input, Uh, not necessarily the 25 that were eligible, but with faculty leaders. Uh, who had some institutional knowledge and memory, and within the financial constraints that we had, and with the support of the board, we also
0: tell me about, tell me about the. I mean, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Uh, tell yeah. me a little bit about the program itself, because I've seen very mixed results of, you know, offers out there that were perceived with great hostility, others that just weren't taken, um, so they didn't do any good. Uh, what did you do that? Um, allowed you to do this? Because I don't remember ever reading about, you know, layoffs at Augustana, do it without creating a stir. And it sounds like having a lot of faculty think it was a good idea.
1: Uh, because we did a couple of things. We, as I mentioned, you know, we, we got input from faculty leaders who are closest to their faculty colleagues who were talking about this uncertainty during COVID and the pivot to online and what this might look like in the fall and what mattered most to them. And we knew that this was going to feel abrupt anyway, because of the virtual nature of our lives in those early months of COVID. And so what we offered was a certain percentage of their base paid out over two years, they would be able to keep their office, right? That matters. I mean, they want that this is a family, right? And that they would be able to keep their office for up to two years, and that we would pay them at the full adjunct rate if they were to, if their department needed the coverage. So it was almost like they got to, it was a nice off-ramp, one that they could see coming, that they felt they didn't have to make a sharp right turn to catch, and that it was informed by, you know, at what pace they could take that ramp, right? Right. And I think they, they knew there was a lot of uncertainty for a lot of colleges and universities financially. And I think they felt that where we were and what they knew that it was a fair financial offer of what we could do. It wasn't, um, overly generous, um, but it was fair and mm-hmm. we got some feedback on what people thought would be fair and where they knew our, our financial situation would be in the ongoing threats of, of COVID to undergraduate enrollment. Now.
0: interesting. I've heard that almost identical offer actually at another institution as well. And, uh, it worked there too. Okay. Uh, I think there's a graciousness to it. Yes, the separation from campus is not abrupt. Um, right. I can still teach. I I still yes. have a presence. You know, I, many folks have worked there for thirty years, right? I mean, it's right. It's their life, and Exactly. to treat it in a very corporate way, I think, um, you know, just doesn't doesn't work. Um, so, uh, and
1: I think that's right, Bob, because it was me relying on faculty who'd been here a long time when we had done it before. What worked, what didn't. The conversations they were having and how Colin and Shannon and I sort of built that knowing we had the support of the board and there was, I think you're right, the graciousness about it and when we we didn't rush anybody, we gave them plenty of time uh, to make a decision well into June, ongoing discussions about it, answering questions about what would this mean because I we continued to pay into their retirement um, maintain health insurance, all these pieces that mattered to them. We made it easy. We anticipated what their needs would be. We vetted it. It was, it was something that they knew we were trying to take care of them during a very uncertain time was something that was fair. And a number of them continued to teach one came back full time. Um, and I, and I made a point to have a virtual conversation with each of each of the 15, um, you know, this is a relational place. It's just, and I right. think that's the benefit of a smaller private university, you know, while it can also create some some unique challenges when it's so relational, when you you've got to put in the relational time and when you do in an authentic way, people trust that you're providing something that has been well thought through. And like you say, isn't necessarily imposing a corporate uh, tone and tenor. To a caring campus environment. And that's the, that's the balance I've tried to strike given, given my professional background. But back in my 20s, I wanted to be a professor, I was hoping to be teaching. And so I always think to myself, how would I view this if I had been down that path and were teaching government right now? I'd be doing it a lot differently than I do as the president.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, and
1: I need to, to try to, to understand and go deeper in that understanding as, as Shannon and I and others steward uh, the university.
0: Mm -hmm. so So there uh, were the savings right and
1: then we had the board did agree to seed money um, Mm -hmm. a one-time modest draw from the endowment to be seeding four different programs two undergraduate uh, and two graduate the master's and the doctorate and then uh, based on pro formas that we showed uh, Mm -hmm. so that they could be comfortable with that and then we through, I mean, we have very generous gifts, and we rebranded kind of the annual fund scholarships to be impact scholarships as we learn more that many of our donors, their philanthropic approach isn't to endow funds. They want to have the greatest impact now. So to have another source of scholarship money that was fully expendable gave mm-hmm. another arrow in the quiver to our financial aid and admissions team.
2: Yeah. What, what I was going to say, Bob, when you say where did the money come from is... We, we were gonna go all in and win the scholarship game. Um, so we increased scholarships, we changed our scholarship model. And then as Stephanie said, again, back to the fund accounting, we, we reshuffled our approach a little bit to double the size of our funded scholarships or what Stephanie's referring to as a funded scholarship. So um, it, that really, I think, is what boosted our jump in enrollment. Um, and obviously, when enrollment is eighty percent or 75 percent of your revenue, I, I think that's where you're making it's, your, your yeah, it's hard to catch up with anything else. yeah yeah um,
0: And I, you know the other thing I think about enrollment is so important is it it ripples through the community. It, it's not just a financial issue. it's empty seats in a classroom. It's a decline in the dialogue around that table as a result. Um, you know there's a, the dining hall is not full. You know, we've all been to a party where nobody came. Um, That's a very, I think, a a negative feeling on campus for everybody involved. So I, I, you know, as you know, I'm a big believer that you've got to pull the levers to grow. So what I heard was, it sounds like you effectively increased the level of scholarship, um, but funded it as well. Um, And that came through alumni giving. So I take it somebody was out there soliciting money. Um, how, how big a priority was that, and how much of your time did it take the two of you, or whoever else was involved?
2: I tell Stephanie it needs to be 150 percent of her time, but
1: <laughs> as you know, Bob, uh, college presidents do spend a lot of time raising money. Uh, from my public life, I had fundraising experience, um, and it's about cultivating relationship, knowing where the passion is, and making the ask, and not being shy about making the ask. And one of the things that we were blessed with is that uh, one of our trustees, who's been very generous, uh, he and his spouse um, made a sizable gift, a $3 million gift for impact scholarships to be allocated over two to three years. Now, this is someone who's a very sophisticated uh, businessman, uh, Mm -hmm. has grown his own company many fold. And understands that this decade is going to be very competitive and for schools like ours where we believe given our strategy, given our financial outlook, given our support uh, and level of engagement from the alumni base in the community that we have staying power. Not all small privates have the same kind of staying power and so when you have that we have to be really aggressive really aggressive with these financial aid awards. And that $3 million gift really was sort of the thing that helped Shannon and the team kind of make some very strategic decisions about these scholarship structures and how those awards were being developed with the admissions and financial aid team and challenged other trustees and those in the alumni base to be investing in these impact scholarships. We have a new women in philanthropy program that we started two years ago the focus is all impact scholarships. Um, We have targets year over year. And if we're not getting them through our traditional ways, um, with my political background, I said, then we're going to be dialing for dollars. If we're in the last quarter and we're short, we're going to be on the phone and we're going to be calling people and we're going to be saying why it's important, what our gap is, what we need and why.
0: Yeah, it's it's sad. I was talking to a college recently that um, went under. And they'd done a lot of good things on enrollment, uh, but they just didn't really cultivate the gifts that they needed and uh, ultimately shuttered. So it is a critical dimension in a not-for-profit institution of any kind, but uh, especially in higher ed. Now, I also heard, just to be make sure I heard it correctly, that the impact scholarships was not an endowed scholarship per se, where you put in a million dollars and you get four, you know, you use four and a half percent of that a year. Um, these were direct You know, donations that then went straight to scholarships. That's correct. Interesting. And that's uh, when
1: our development officers are meeting with our donors. It's a nice way to start the conversation of what's your what's your philosophy around philanthropy. You know, we have over 650 endowed funds by families and over generations that continue to build the corpus, continue to then generate more to serve more students, but younger alums or even older, but have a different philosophy, they want the impact now. They kind of understand either the competitive environment or they just want the greatest number of students to benefit now. Uh, And it's just a different approach and a different philosophy. And it makes for really, I think, engaging conversations around philanthropy and offers this, and then how we can build on what we've done successfully with the endowed scholarships and relationship building, but doing the same with our our donors who are giving at a level in the impact scholarships to name those and to meet their recipients.
0: Oh, they get to meet the recipients. Yes. Oh, that's very nice. Sometimes people keep it sort of confidential. Um, Yeah, that changes it a lot, I think, um, in the degree to which you feel you've had an impact on an individual as opposed to sort of an amorphous Um, entity, you don't really know who it was, that kind of thing. Right. Um,
1: So, for example, with our Women in in Philanthropy Impact Scholarships, what we raised last year then went to support 12 first-year students, female students, and we had a luncheon of our Steering Committee for the Women in Philanthropy with those 12 students, and then each of the women on the Steering Committee was paired with them as a mentor. And it just allows for again relationship building and engagement. We've now engaged our some of our female coaches and female faculty members to be a part of the Women in Philanthropy initiative, as we continue to to build on lessons learned, what worked well, and what didn't work as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, what I don't hear in, in in something like that is gifts that create momentum. Um, in a sense, that's a that's a. a a, a A cash donation that has an impact at a moment in time, um but doesn't create what I would call a flywheel. doesn't build momentum um, to sustain revenue in future periods. Um, were there are other it, it may not be philanthropy, but there are other kinds of things you did that you know kind of built a growth engine that that continued to generate new enrollment.
2: Yeah.
1: Shannon, do you want to speak? To yeah, Bob. so
2: um, I, the 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 approach we took with this so um so net tuition you know colleges and universities we often compare that net tuition number Mm -hmm. um as a financial barometer and I think that that it's not necessarily a misnomer but what it but like you said what is going into your net tuition right and so The financial model that we built here with growing scholarships, changing our fund accounting is we were going to establish a net tuition model on scholarships where we tried to, with our growth component of it, have three-fourths of it be funded and one-fourth of it or 25% of it unfunded. As we all know, we discount tuition and, again, not auxiliaries, not housing, not dining, not any of the other components that are on campus that That generate revenue or provide financial sustainability. So, when we're investing 25 cents on a dollar to enroll a student, um, the ROI on that becomes very exponential, right? So, as we've grown our enrollment, you know, 80 to 100 to 150 to whatever that student exponential is, and then whatever is on top of that for auxiliary, right? And so whether that's a $10,000 a year plan or a $15,000 a year plan, you start doing math at 80 to 100 students. Um, and then you start you start looking at then what that investment of a scholarship is in the student. And so, Bob, what we did is we ran through the statistics model or an NER model that universities have what is that tipping point within a scholarship model that would get a student to enroll? And we found, we determined what that number was. And then we took that 25-75 ratio and went for that number. And that's how we did it. Um, and that's how we, and again, you start doing that math and just for us, that was $15 million. You know, it just, that's the huge Influx of stability. um, And then that's a four and five year return off that one year, right? So Stephanie described a three year plan. So, in essence, that's a 12 year model, right, of going for three years and then you get those students um, out there for four. So, it's creating that exponential return and understanding that ratio and playing this net tuition game uh, better than your competitor
0: really interesting. So let me just see if I understood what you said. Um, let's assume my tuition is uh, $10 gross, and I'm going to give a discount on that. I'm not sure I can get easy math on this, but I'm going to discount it by, let's say, uh, $4, because then the numbers will work. I'm going to take $3 of that, um, and I'm going to get it from the impact grants. There you go. um, I'm going to take a t- dollar and that's going to be recovered from, uh, well, that's going to come out of your expense structure or just yep. net revenue.
2: Exactly.
0: So now I've got $6 left. Um, it, practically speaking, if we we're doing this, it would be inverted. You'd have $4 left because yep. uh, typically it's going to run 50 to 60% discounts. But I was going to
2: say it. your four should be six, but you got it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, I just can't do numbers with six. Uh, so, um, you know, now, and then I think what you said is that I'm going to recover uh, I'm, I'm going to get a lot of incremental revenue from my auxiliaries from room and board, yeah. which is not discounted, correct. So in effect, I put uh, I've used that discount to get another student in a dorm. Yeah. And um, the dorms don't cost anything at the margin. Um, right. I don't have to. You're not building a room for the student. Uh, you're actually not even doing heat, light and rent because it's probably on anyway. Um, so. Uh, that dorm revenue is pure margin for the institution, which then generates money that you can use to reinvest in the system and keep it and get that flywheel moving. Right,
2: and then that's how you fund your investments in the other programs. Exactly.
0: Very interesting. Um, so uh, I hear a change in the team. We talked about. Um, I think we talked about a change in the financial uh, model. Really, uh, the whole perception of how the financials work. To, to try and create to stimulate growth and then to find a way to make money on that growth that um, wasn't obvious uh, we used to call it in my old company the profit zone where you know oftentimes you'd yeah. see somebody sell a jet engine you'd think, well I made money on the engine no actually they' be on in a service contract and the financing um, so in that same sense we're using the auxiliaries uh, for that amplifier um, what w- what else culturally uh, had to change? you mentioned at the beginning we talked about uh, culture of scarcity um, did that remain how did that change well it
1: it, change? it has remained because we've been very disciplined especially with the smaller class that so many colleges and universities had in the fall of 2020 mm-hmm. but we've also worked collaboratively to build a compensation benefits plan so that people have some visibility on why they you know the certain Target using data in the college and University professional space the association space and then for faculty it's helped because there's a plan we actually engaged a consultant Shannon our VP of HR uh constituents across campus were part of a task force that spent 18 months and we launched we uh, launched the, the plan in February of 2021 Two. And so this current fiscal year is the first year of that plan where it shows what the targets are for faculty across tenured, tenure track, non tenured. And then for administrators, we developed pay grades, which we hadn't had before. And then for support staff, we have built in across a number of the support staff positions incremental increases to remain competitive in this city for hourly wage um, colleagues. And people now feel comfortable that there's a plan. Now, there was still skepticism about the plan, but that's coming down because we're entering the second year of the plan. They just got their letters of appointment and they see among the faculty, 70% of them are getting an increase based on updating that data and increasing the percentage year over year from now until 2030. I think that helps, right? Because when you're asking for this much change at this kind of pace, there is a sense that. Well, we're trying, we're, we're positioning ourselves in this way, what does that mean for my pay? And how we've traditionally looked at salary and benefits at Augustana. And so a lot of communication in a lot of different formats, a lot of answering questions, anticipating questions. But I think each year that we live into this compensation benefits plan and what we've prioritized with the dynamic budgeting that Shannon's put in place, more and more will feel comfortable uh, that this has been a key part of the strategic plan. We didn't, we're didn't. we not doing comp and benefits as an afterthought. It's a key yeah. piece of the stewardship of the institution.
2: Mm-hmm. So Bob, I think the the two elements that you have to have is you, one, um, when I was coming on board, I asked Stephanie what her appetite was for risks or taking risks. You have to have a leadership team that's willing to take some risks, but it has to be risks that you take in the number two point here in your plan. Um, You taking risk on the elements in your plan, not outside the plan, not outside the peripheral, you can't get distracted or deviate from the plan. So some of the programs we've tried, we've stubbed our toe on some of them, but we've succeeded on more that that we've not succeeded on, right? So you have to be willing, again... You have to be willing to take some risks on some of these investments and some of these growth. Um, And I just think, from my private equity days, some of them just aren't going to pan out. But to Stephanie's point, what faculty and staff will see is that what you've talked about with these risks in your plan—they see them come to fruition. They're seeing that everyone gets a chance to participate and try, and then you keep sticking to it. Um, And this compensation one has been a big piece for us that. Um, now for next year will be the second year in a row where the majority of faculty and staff receive increases. And so it's like, OK, you know, they can start to see it over time. And I think we would have seen it here sooner if it wouldn't have been for COVID. Yeah. Um, that definitely delayed us a bit.
0: Yeah, that was no fun. Um, so let's see. Um, you mentioned an initially. Let's transition over to the, to the things you invested in to grow. You mentioned the impact scholarships. What else?
1: We invested in interdisciplinary programs. Now, those didn't cost a lot of money, but when you have a provost and a registrar that are as talented as ours uh, and well-respected by the faculty, they can navigate how to build these interdisciplinary programs based primarily on what faculty are currently offering uh, with maybe some modest adjustments. We've had some real faculty champions who led the way, whether it's in our medical humanities and society minor, our environmental studies major, our brewing and fermentation minor. We have a new fintech major that has a a major corporate gift behind it to support it. Um, The doctorate of physical therapy, we've invested a lot in and our first cohort of students will be starting this June after three and a half years of development. That one we've had to be really patient on and it has taken a toll on, on our operating budgets, but, but the faculty unanimously endorsed that program. They mm-hmm. saw that they were willing.
0: All right. So let's go back to one of the reasons I don't like shrinking. Um, that had nothing to do with our, our performance, by the way, which is great. Yeah. It's his performance in this yeah. case, but, um, it often those conversations are, uh, go hand in hand with Um, you know, declining revenue, which is one of the reasons not to have that. So we we just began talking about uh, some new programs um, in the DPT launch, uh, three-year investment. Um, Have you seen any, have you started enrolling students in that yet?
1: Yes. So this will be our first cohort starting in June. Our Mm -hmm. target is 80 students and we're confident we're going to hit the target. And we can talk about some of the academic programs, athletic programs, the student housing project in more detail. One of the things I do wanna highlight though, Bob is, and and Shannon can uh, elaborate on this, is I knew pretty early on, as I mentioned earlier in our conversation, that the academic structure needed to be revisited.
0: Mm, And
1: so by changing the structure from three academic divisions to a College of Arts and Sciences with those three divisions, but for schools and changing the shared governance model to align with that new structure and investing in deans of the schools partnered with a senior director of corporate and community partnerships out of the advancement office. We've really invested both in those positions, uh, the salaries in those positions, but also how they help leverage uh, opportunity for Mm. growth right, for program growth, for technology integration, for enrollment growth based on their leadership and ties to the community.
0: So tell me more. Um, I've got, now I've got, uh, I'm not sure I understand the structure. There's a College of Arts and Sciences.
1: Yes. Yeah. it has the three traditional divisions that have been around for decades, natural sciences, social sciences, and humanities.
0: But
2: we
1: broke out the School of Business, that used to be in the social sciences, broke out the school of education that used to be in social sciences, Mm -hmm. broke out the school of music that used to be in humanities, and we broke out the school of health professions that used to be in natural sciences. And I'll use the school of music as an example, and maybe the school of education as well. The school of music does not yet have a naming gift. However, the leadership of that dean has created these partnerships in the technology space, whereby we've got a gift for the Midco Media Center for audio and video production of both musical performances and athletic events. So that Midco Media campus is right on our campus and the students are getting certified because the faculty were willing to get certified with the AVID Pro Tools so these are students that are multimedia entrepreneurship majors, a new major. Some of them are music majors. Some of them are in English and journalism. And they're yes. utilizing the, this technology. We also got a major gift, not a naming gift for the school, but a gift to invest in Yamaha pianos that are full of new technology. And we so we have this corporate partnership now with Yamaha and with Avid. And we were able to convince one of the um, original kind of key software designers to come and be our director of innovation uh, for multimedia entrepreneurship. He moved here from Idaho and he'd been out in California. On the School of Education side, we had a number of distinct programs already. We got a naming gift at the beginning of our campaign for the strategic plan. And the partnerships that they've developed with Sanford Health We're housing the Academy of Behavioral Health within the School of Education, but the collaboration with psychology, sociology, the School of Health Professions, again, deliberate collaboration to diminish the tendency to get siloed. So those two deans have done amazing work already, and we're only, what, Shannon, two and a half, three years into this new structure.
0: So I also heard we partnered those deans with somebody from development, um, corporate development. So what does that partnership mean? Uh, Where does marketing fit in all that?
1: Well, that's, so we've made some recent investments in a new position in marketing, enrollment marketing too. But our idea for, uh, as the city of Sioux Falls grows, a number of us have relationships, deep and long relationships. They're just, we're small private, we're lean, and there's not enough of us to go around. And so this senior director of corporate and community partnerships is sort of our networker in Sioux Falls, who is the connector to deans and faculty. And this person serves on the president's council and then understands kind of the vision of each school, where they would like to attract investment and new program. Or support for scholarships. So it's a bit of a hybrid position. You know, it's not that you this person has a portfolio of individual donors. They're more out there understanding what workforce needs are, understanding where corporate and community partners want to collaborate with us. So whether it's the financial services sector in Sioux Falls and developing an advisory board for our new financial technology program. That's one area, so working with the Dean and the business faculty and the program director. uh, She's played a key role in developing that advisory board. She's doing the same thing as it relates to opportunities for the other schools. Um, So she's only been on board with us just as her first year. Um, We had a different person in that position, but they were a bit more internally focused because of some COVID operational needs and she didn't really get a chance to. To do what we, we originally envisioned with that program, uh, but now we have someone who's got the year under her belt and is uh, someone, you know, it's a different skill set to navigate within the community, both with established leaders as well as new business and expanding businesses here in Sioux Falls, whether they're alumni leaders or they're non-alumni, it's about connecting the right people in the right ways for where the interests are and what that led to how that led to an investment, although it's a funny story, we were hoping for a major gift for our new hockey program and the financial services company as led by an individual who's been very generous individually to Augustana Athletics. And he said, yeah, we'll give some more money to uh, athletics, but we really want to talk to you about a fintech program. (laughs) And they gave us a a seven-figure gift to launch it and to hire a program director and hire faculty and do the marketing. And that's going to be no other program in the region in fintech.
0: That's terrific. Um, so you've moved your, in addition to that director, you've given your deans uh, an outward looking responsibility. Yes. yes. Um, to cultivate the 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 uh, links to the community, to get the financing, to identify what they need technically and so forth um, to build new programs. Um, so it's a very, I don't know that I've heard about that as a dean's role before, maybe it is in a major university. Um, Is that is that unusual or um, is that I just missed something?
2: Yeah, so yeah, yeah. so Bob, I think purposely, so you back to your question is, what did we invest in? So I think investing in this academic model with a college and schools is Mm -hmm. is similar to larger universities. And so it was purposefully it was for talent acquisition, um, you know, with here on our campus of retaining and attracting talent. Um, But it was also purposely, so familiarity with students were recruiting. So uh, here at Augustana and South Dakota, our two primary competitors are the two state schools. And I'm sure other colleges and universities across the country are in a similar situation. So as a student is being recruited at a state school, in the school of business, school of nursing, etc., they hear the same language from our recruiters but then we also get to talk about the flexibility that you have on a liberal art campus to still direct your academic experience. Um, so again, it's just a way of initially engaging in a conversation to a potential student that's familiar to what they're hearing from your major competitors. So again, the investment in this academic model was as Stephanie is saying entrepreneurial, investment, corporate, all that kind of thing. But it's also about attracting talent, retaining talent, and then always coming back to how, how are we going to recruit more students.
0: Great. That's very helpful. Um, other, so you created the schools. Um, what other initiatives did you undertake to grow? Uh, we added programs. I hear you're going to have 80 new graduate students starting in the fall um, in one program. So let me see. That's probably a three-year program.
1: Two. Accelerated. Accelerated to your, oh, hybrid. That, yeah. that
0: actually I've heard is very effective in increasing recruiting, by the way. Yes. Um, that if you can do the same program in less time, uh, people will beat a path to your door, especially where it's a professional degree like that and they're taking time out for their working lives. So that'll be 160 students approximately in that program. Um, that's 10% of the entire enrollment at Augustana, isn't it?
2: not quite but yeah you're,
1: not you're quite in the, you're in that
0: 70 percent a, a yeah, big boost to the graduate true. numbers yeah uh, yeah but I mean I it, total last I knew was 17 students isn't it um so that's a that's a huge number um
1: so we're about 2,000 students when you count the graduate students
0: ah uh, okay got it yep yep
1: and so, um a less so the graduate our goal for 2030 we're a little delayed because of the impact of COVID we wanted to be a about 2,000 to 2,200 undergraduates, and then the 800 or so graduate students. And it's programs like DPT that can have these larger cohorts that will help us get there. Do I think we can still get to 3,000 by 2030? Yes, but it's going to be a stretch, right? I think the the Again, you get one small class, which we did in COVID, and it affects you four years. So it's not a one-year setback. It's a four-year setback.
0: Yeah, it's a uh, a mouse in the uh, condor, right, instead of an elephant. Yes, right, Um,
1: right. But we also, and, and Shannon can speak to our student housing project, we did the campus master plan in the middle of COVID that spring of 2020. That was part of our strategic plan. You know, we didn't hit pause. So when our board approved the strategic plan in December of 2019, and we were moving to the provost model of a a leadership structure to go from what Dr. Irvin called the pontoon boat to the speed boat, right? To kind of match this academic structure and execute with excellence on the strategic plan. We were operationalizing phase one when COVID hit and we had so many people across campus that were part of these four strategic steering planning, steering committees in the strategic planning that we asked many of them to go into operational planning for COVID, right? Mm -hmm. So we had this nice set of just experienced colleagues in planning who did an outstanding job and we didn't have to hit pause. We'd simply made some pivots on our strategic plan. And the student housing project was one that Shannon masterfully guided us through getting our credit rating uh, from S&P the following January and having a successful bond sale at a favorable rate at the timing in that market again supported uh, by the When board did of you actually
0: go to market did you get money at 3% <laughs> oh that is that is a wonderful thing um, <laughs> we I'm,
1: got fortunate on the timing of that one yeah um and you know we we are recognizing what this city wants from us to and, and how we differentiate we're finding the alignment between what helps us differentiate from a strategic standpoint. And what can be really energizing for the community, either from a workforce standpoint mm-hmm. or a quality of life standpoint and that's where the hockey. The division one hockey program comes in.
0: Um, tell me about the division one hockey program.
1: So Shannon came from the University of Kansas. Their national university uh, division one athletics and all sports. We set as an aspirational goal to transition to an all sports division one program during this decade. But during COVID, we had to have a virtual site visit and we didn't get the invitation uh, from a more geographically close uh, division one conference. We then looked at a different conference, kind of differently aligned, not as good a geographical fit, more of an emphasis on football. We weren't quite sure we could financially uh, achieve that. And it was just one of these things where we're just not satisfied, right, with with treading water or hitting pause. It was, what's the pivot? And the city of Sioux Falls has really grown in its youth hockey program. There's no collegiate hockey in the state of South Dakota. And... It didn't compete with USD and SDSU, where there are a lot of donors to those all sports division one conferences and big football and basketball programs. And so we had a key donor who we'd been cultivating for about three years, whether for academic program investment, for community impact investment, something that could be differentiated for him. And since athletics is the fourth pillar of our four programs, I put, uh, hockey in front of him because I had had some intel from someone who knows him well that his two boys had played hockey and he doesn't like to duplicate his gifts to fund similar things and he knew that this would be great for the city that was so good to him great for the whole state and great for Augustana and Mm -hmm. we had a lead gift and then the gifts kept coming because it was sort of this challenge of how much we had to make now we're still raising money it's a very expensive program and While we got lucky in the bond sale for student housing, we got very unlucky in the timing of building a hockey arena with Mm. the market pressures, but the donors continue to be very generous and we're still working hard at it. And it allows us to be this asset to the community, to the youth hockey world. It's not something that we never expected Division I athletics to be some sort of magic bullet on enrollment. And to the extent that it has helped some schools when they make that transition in enrollment that only lasts, you know, for two or three years, you can't count on it necessarily for longer periods of time. But what what it does do is it elevates our profile in the community, in the region, nationally, because there are only 62 men's ice hockey programs in the country. And we get to compete against Big Ten programs like Wisconsin. We get to compete against Notre Dame. We get to compete against Arizona State, but we also will compete against schools we currently compete against, like St. Cloud State, uh, Minnesota State, and Bemidji, who are Minnesota powerhouses in hockey at the mm-hmm. Division II all sports, but Division One hockey.
0: Yeah, well. And then we get this beautiful
1: daughters. new gem of a facility, right? So we get sort of the growth in something that's attracting lots of attention and can be used for rec services, for other students, non-student athletes, and for the community to to come together.
0: Well, do you get um, a lot of people from the community coming in to watch the games?
1: We will, we think it's gonna be the hottest ticket in town. We'll open in a different venue till Midco Arena is open. And we already have season ticket interest uh, that is more expansive than what we have capacity for. Uh, So it it lets us um, set pricing pretty strategically uh, mm-hmm. Same for the suites and again, how we can rent out, as Shannon pointed out, different auxiliary revenue in right. rental of the facility throughout the year.
0: Um, yeah, both my kids played hockey up into high school. So
2: very good.
0: Um, that was one of my sons aspired to be a pro hockey player, but <laughs> um, it's pretty good, but not that good. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then actually right. one of the guys that works for me um, got recruited uh, as a pro hockey player. Um, and, and skated for a little while you know in the develop in the in the junior league uh yes. not the canadian junior leagues but the uh, farm team for the bruins i think
2: oh, okay uh,
0: and it's a strike year so i was very fortunate the big boys came down to uh the the lower level and um pete had to hang up his skates um, during the strike so oh. he, came, he came to me um Ten years ago, still still here, one of the top couple guys in the company. So, um.
1: well, Shannon and I are baseball people, but we we like what hockey does to again elevate our profile and bring in donors who had never given to Augustana before. Uh, but again, Bob, a lot of what we've done, you know, I think can be replicated by mm-hmm. other leaders in higher ed. But we're really fortunate. Our location in Sioux Falls, it's a very philanthropic community year over year we're in the top five nationally per capita and united way giving there's a lot of wealth here through the health systems financial services biotechnology uh trust assets so you know it's about again developing relationships understanding people's passions and we know that a lot of athletic givers uh, tend to become academic donors as well. So we'll keep yeah. cultivating those relationships. To well, the and all those of athletes
0: obviously. are, what this is a phrase, <laughs> one knee injury away from being scholars. Um, <laughs> so, you know, they, they go to class. And um, I never really understood that linkage between the athletic and academic parts um, of a higher education institution. But it's, especially for a smaller college, actually, it's a very material component of enrollment. And you're not, D1's a bit different, but for the other sports, um, you're really not recruiting uh, just an athlete. Um, you don't right. you don't have that money. You're not going to give them a full ride or, uh, you know, and uh, so it's really much more of a blend between bringing a new student in and bringing in an athlete um, than it would be if you were uh, recruiting for, you know, um, Kansas football.
1: That's right. And Shannon, um, maybe you can speak to- So me. I may
0: be being unfair to Kansas football as well, by the way, um, in terms- <laughs> of the quality of student that they may be bringing in. So most schools that I talked to, their athletes are actually outperforming academically and and in terms of retention. So um, again, not something I I knew before I sort of started poking around this. Yeah, no, I think that- um,
1: The reason I want Shannon to speak to this is because during COVID, a lot of people were just cutting, cutting programs, cutting athletic academic programs. Shannon just had an entirely different and, and more strategic view of this based on what you just described, Bob, and his understanding of how it worked at Augustana maybe differently than a place like Kansas. So we added athletics uh, programs. So Shannon, I know you were going to start to speak to that.
2: No, yeah. no. So we identified um, three or four Olympic sports, Bob, that um, we felt like we could, uh, in addition to hockey, um, could bring on to our campus to, again, with this concept of how do we grow? Mm -hmm. Um, And so we identified three or four sports that, again, high roster, um, you know, with, you know, where the scholarship, you know, investment wasn't as great. Like, so with hockey, the whole whole piece behind hockey is brand awareness, um, not only in this community, but it's the quarter million dollar viewers we're going to get in this region like when Stephanie said we're playing the University of Notre Dame on TV right and so right. it's the brand awareness. Similar to it what Stephanie was saying that that I encountered with Kansas basketball right and just the recognition nationally that that brings you when you're talking with a faculty staff or student. Oh yeah, you know how is it to be able to experience this on your campus it's just amazing thing right and so that's the vision or part of the vision behind hockey um but then obviously to support that you need other growth mechanism and there's other leverage levers that we need to leverage right and so so again we borrowed from the division three model where where you go out and you grow your university through athletics um and so that's what we've done with very specifically through swimming um an emerging sport called acro and tumbling um, you know, just those two rosters alone uh, are going are to be adding nearly 75 new students to our campus each year. So um, again, exponentially, you start to do that. And then we've identified a couple others that, that we'll be bringing on here shortly as well. So and then you start to expand your club teams from there um, that can go along with that. And so um, hockey then brings men's and women's club sports Um, And so, again, just the visibility that's creating along with leveraging these other programs, which then allows you to improve your strength and conditioning program, your nutritional programs, and these other things that you bolt on to the academic experience that then these athletes are telling their friends and their families um, of furthering, furthering our advantage in the community and in competing here regionally. Uh, Yeah, there's a lot of
0: self-reinforcing things that happen around sports, both directions, um, yep. you know, and once you get a good team, your odds of having a good team the next year, are dramatically different because your recruiting changes, um, and all that sort of thing, you know, yeah. and, and the word, and I do think it has an impact on the community, not necessarily just one sport, but, um, having people who are participating in something, feel part of a group as well as some people who come to watch, um, it's fun and um, it is a community activity. So don't wanna overemphasize it though, because it doesn't, I mean, that is a component of what you've done, um, but it, you've, you've launched more programs, academic programs and sports teams. Um, yes. And it sounds like one of those alone is gonna be bigger than most of your sports combined um, in DPT. <laughs> Great program, by the way. Um, any other programs that you've launched that have been inordin- unusually successful?
2: I don't know about unusually successful, but we we brought back the Augustana marching band. Um, oh. And, and so again, this this splash with our school of music, um, you know, you you're you're looking for very a very talented musician in your school of music, and Stephanie can speak to you all about that. But with a marching band, if you can bang a drum or blow a tuba, um, you know, again, it's just another scholarship opportunity to recruit a student. And you want to talk about roster size in a program of 140 to 150 students. Um, and again, for minimal investment um, of equipment that you didn't already have or that's in a case in a closet somewhere.
0: Right. You don't need a you don't need a high-end Steinway for, for <laughs> yeah. a for a particular player. So
2: so other than storage, <laughs> <laughs> um, just another program, another auxiliary. Um, another scholarship opportunity that, again, the the investment in our academic structure spurred an innovative thought around another lever uh, we could pull.
0: I can't say I'm a big fan of bands. Uh, the Harvard band used to wor- warm up outside my dorm room on Saturday morning. Um, so my freshman year, um, we used to make a habit of throwing water balloons at them. Um, so, uh, you know, It's the closest I ever came to getting thrown out of school, actually.
1: Uh Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. That hurt the instruments.
0: We were low story. There was no danger involved, but Uh somehow people didn't appreciate it.
1: So I think we mentioned a few of the other new uh, programs. Social work, both bachelor's and master's, we're bringing back a social Mm -hmm. work program around this integrated behavioral health strategy again, leveraging our strategic partnership with Sanford Health and Mm -hmm. our relationships with the Sioux Falls School District for what some of those certificate programs might be as well as a master's in counseling. Um, I would say that the the environmental studies program has a lot of majors. This is a generation that is attracted to um, environmental sustainability initiatives And it is actually one of our philosophy professors who spearheaded uh, the development of this major and minor based on a grant that we received in 2017. And he has just collaborated with so many other faculty, as well as a lot of community partners. Often the students with the ideas leading the way in developing our outdoor classroom, which we've now developed another one, They've asked Dr. O'Hara and the students to partner in the local K through twelve schools to, you know build kind of these outdoor classrooms modeled on what we did. Uh, so that one in terms of number of majors grew pretty quickly. Um, Shannon, the multimedia entrepreneurship major I know grew pretty quickly. yeah, so
0: one of the things I found interesting in School of Music is um, you didn't go after orchestral music. Um, and I've looked at the economics of music uh, too many times. Normally it's, a, it's, it's financially, disaster is too strong a term, but it's close. You know, the revenues and costs don't line up because you've got a lot of individual instruction. And it's kind of the nature of the beast and colleges end up limiting it. So I can't afford to invest this much in my music program and then I gotta stop. Um, so it, what I heard in this is actually by bringing in a different kind of music course, and major in production, now all of a sudden, I'm out of that, um, th- th- those boundaries that create the financial problems around music. Mm-hmm. Um, so it becomes you know, both attractive to students who you know, know they're never gonna play in a symphony orchestra but wanna be around music uh, to go down the production side. Colin and I chatted about this at one point and it was it just very interesting. The other problem, of course, with music is there are no jobs if you're a musician um, to speak of and, and they don't pay well. Music production is a whole different kettle of fish. Right. So, uh, very interesting. Tell me what what are you teaching in that program at this point, and and what does the enrollment look like? How much? That's a new program a few years ago, right?
1: I think uh, we're in the third year of that program, correct, Shannon?
2: Yeah, we've we originally started out with only having twelve seats. We've expanded to eighteen for this coming year. About
0: mm-hmm. twelve new students, or twelve students enrolled total
2: um total yeah so it's um oh i'm sorry each year yeah so we we can have a cohort of now 18 a year
0: so we're looking at 60 70 incremental students a year total um actually a little bit more than that um I think. and they're
1: taking some business courses you know an entrepreneurship course um i don't have the full listing shannon you might be able to pull it up but there's that's what we like about it's not just housed within one school. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's the uh, concentric circles here of, of what those students are getting exposed to so that they can, you know, make money if they choose. They're more likely to, to be able to have a livelihood um, right. and maybe one in the, the business of music, not just in music education or music performance, although many of them may have opportunities in music education and performance as well. One of our adjunct professors is um, well-known in this community for performance, has been for years, and he's exposing our students to um, the blend of, of what it is to be a performer, but he's also teaching, and he's also just part of the music business scene. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're taking these courses too then with these AVID Pro Tools. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so the they technology pretty, is a key part. Yeah, yeah. that's right.
2: Yeah, so the I think the key, Bob, is what Stephanie's saying is this avid certification through these Pro Tool courses. So even if you're a business student, you know every eighteen and nineteen year old wants to be a blogger or a YouTuber, right? And they have this vision. So even if you're a business student, you could through again this entrepreneurial liberal arts approach take these courses through uh, multimedia. Uh, again, hopes that you can produce this Um, that you have a business element or a marketing element or an economics element, right? It's just, uh, it's It's a creative field.
0: That combination of business skills, technology, and artistic temperament of one type or another is very important.
1: And now our journalism faculty is starting to get some of the certifications as well. Some of them want to be Uh, podcasters.
0: Yeah, aren't we all? Um, That's And uh, not sure I'm particularly skilled at it, but you know we'll get there. Um, So I find it fun too. Um, I I got my first job out of college not because I was a history major, and I'm probably not the only person who didn't get their job because they were a history major. Um, But uh, I produced a show, so that whole you know I couldn't sing, I couldn't dance, and I couldn't act, but I could uh, show up and turn lights on and off and do all those things. Um, So you know that turned out to be very instrumental for me. It was a a completely volunteer activity at the school I went to, but that idea of as a student having the opportunity to produce, uh, to create something, I think is very exciting too.
1: And now we're doing this for middle school students and high school students through the Summer Experience, Mm. the Experience Augustana Summer Activities, and that's been funded through donors through the Promising Futures Fund for lower income students, wouldn't be able to attend camp if it weren't free for them and they're getting exposed uh to these uh technologies and their opportunity to acquire some of those skills which we then hope you know they'll can, that gives them a different type of pathway uh right. to us throughout high school and we hope then uh choosing us
0: so uh, it's a recruiting mechanism as well is. as good deed yes. for the community that's right um, especially in the minority communities that's that's terrific Um, so anything else um, in terms of growth strategies that you've
2: pursued yeah there's so your third grow so it's grow and grow the third grow is there's only so much growth a college and university can do bob between the hours of nine and three between the months of september and may Mm. so this is my next my next challenge that my president is signed up to take a risk with me on as how do we get more out of summers? How do we get more out of evenings? How do we And again, you start to think about what that can do exponentially, not only for students, but faculty. Um, just again, instead of nine month contracts, you can go to eleven month. you know there's just this whole world that I think college and universities need to explore more and more and further and further, utilizing your campus, you know, all this investment we're making in our infrastructure. And it sits vacant in the summer, drives drives me crazy. So we'll we'll see if it works. But uh that's your third grow in your book, Bob.
1: Growing the calendar.
2: Yeah, yeah. growing the calendar, <laughs> yeah. It's all about utilization.
0: Um, you know, it's like having a, a manufacturing plant that runs empty for three that's months, right. not good for the economics. Um yeah. you know, it's uh, one of the things I'm hearing about in that domain, I think is really interesting, is um it's actually a vendor that does it, but I won't name names, it's not you know, not appropriate, but um, they're offering hybrid programs in healthcare where uh, you can do all your classroom work online, uh, but then they bring you to campus for uh, the hands-on uh, clinical kinds of things. And of course, they've got a way of finding clinical sites around the country, uh, which is a dark art, frankly, yes. um, but uh, through affiliations in healthcare. I don't know if there's something in that that you can, you, you could use, but I think um, that combination of I'll do it remote um, and yeah, then bring it to campus when your campus is empty. That's um, the premise of application the, number of yeah. fields.
2: That's the premise of the DPT program. And then when yep. you can accelerate it on top of that, uh, even better.
1: And that's exactly that their model, of,
2: by the way. Yeah. Uh, um, so.
1: Some of what we're doing with nursing too, correct, Shannon?
2: Yep. Yeah. Yeah,
0: that's another another one. And a huge um, field, obviously, from an educational standpoint as well. Uh, My personal thought there, I I really like the idea of a psych nurse, nurse, psych nurse practitioner. Um, You know, it's just we're going to need thousands of them um, because you can't make psychiatrists fast enough uh, with the length of school Mm -hmm. and the cost. um, But we're going to need people who can deal with the mental health crisis and prescribe. Unfortunately, it's been abused a bit already. with some of the online and phone stuff, but um, I don't know what our alternative is, you know, for people who need mental health care. Um, And and the other one that's interesting for that actually is a physician assistant, Um, same kind of thing. I can get you, you know, three years after college, I can get you to the level of training you need in order to help people. Mm -hmm. Um, So, uh, but you've probably already thought of those things.
1: We've explored some of them and now with Congress, Passing a law that Medicare can reimburse for master's uh, degree level counseling is mm. certainly helpful. You know that had to be kind of social work
2: yeah.
1: in terms of the, the complexity of reimbursement under Medicare and how that can also inform private uh, insurance coverage. So we're looking at the sequence, the cadence of which we're doing the integrated behavioral health degree programs uh, in partnership with Sanford Health. And the virtual piece there, right? So they have a major gift to develop out a virtual care center. And our opportunity is to partner with them in the behavioral health space, as well as in the nursing space, and possibly even this physical therapy space based on how we've structured the doctorate of physical therapy program.
0: So I have a question for you. What about artificial intelligence? Um, What are you doing with it? If anything, how is that? going to affect you? Um, and is there a growth opportunity buried in there somewhere?
1: So I'll uh, try first, and then we'll see what Shannon thinks. So both the doctorate of physical therapy program through the robotics piece, as well as um, the FinTech, the financial technology program, both of those will have uh, opportunities to pull in AI threads uh, into the curriculum design. The There are you, we know in healthcare, it's it, there's it's as Congress tries to get its arms around kind of the regulatory sphere here and the privacy issues, but there's a lot of promise there uh, as it relates to the healthcare space and maybe even the behavioral healthcare space. I don't know. Um, there's also some work being done in education uh, from an AI standpoint and how certain students students learn. Uh, We are already partners in a Master's of Genetic Counseling program, and uh, I think the health systems are going to start leading the way on how to appropriately and ethically integrate AI into the health sciences. So I think those are some of our our avenues, both in the School of Health Professions and the School of Business. What do you think, Shannon?
2: I think academically, Stephanie, you you covered the the few that I'm aware of, Bob, but where I think A.I. is really going to come in to colleges and universities is again on enrollment Um, The our the traditional funnel for enrollment is changing. Uh, As you know, COVID changed that. And then with organizations such as Common App, where where students are now applying for 10, 15, 20 different schools, you know, again, it used to be a student would visit two or three campuses and try to decide, you know, with the growth of organizations like Common App doing away with tests, uh, application fees. Um, you know, you're just flooded with applicants. And so it's going to be the use of AI and technology to try to skim information on who is truly interested in your university. And then now with the changing of FASPA and the test taking centers to where that information potentially isn't going to be readily available is all as well, is I think who can figure out AI and technology. Um, to replace these elements um, the, of how the whole enrollment and admissions process, in my opinion, is going to take a left or right turn here in the next two to three years.
0: Yeah, I think that's probably right. There are lots of other applications on the infrastructure side, too. Um, one of the things we're experimenting with, just as an example, is uh, I can now give numbers that would normally be in a, you know, a numerical report, a graph or a chart or something like that. And have um, ChatGPT will actually give you back a, a nice written summary of what those numbers say, um, which is a big help, you know, especially if you have to write reports around those. But also if you're more of a reader and less of a numbers person, to give you something that's more digestible. So I know we'll be doing that over the next mm-hmm. I don't know twelve months or so. But it, I don't know if you've read about what UCF is doing. Um, but I think they're pretty cutting edge on this now. They've actually, they got a big donor. Um, yeah, I
1: think I, did they just, was there something in the Chronicle or something? I feel like I just saw something. Central
0: coming.
2: Central Florida?
0: Yeah, University of Central yeah. Florida. They, their donor was one of the founders at NVIDIA, I think, which oh. is the big chip maker for you know uh, AI chips. So, uh, but he required that they infuse AI throughout the entire curriculum. And one of the things I'd be thoughtful about is there's a tendency to think of AI in the computer science area, and and there is obviously a huge role there, but that's going to be more on the development of AI tools and and implementation of AI systems, but there's a whole other layer to this, which is the use of AI, Um, and I think there's a whole discipline to be created around um, applied um, artificial intelligence. How do I use it to do yes. whatever I want to do? Um, whether it's write an English paper, do yes. research, um, write a marketing material, um, mm-hmm. analyze something—you uh, know—that I think is much more accessible uh, to the average mortal and almost universal in its applications. Um, and figuring out how to ride this horse is yes. a whole other discipline from figuring out how to feed the horse and do the other things that you know. And how to make a horse, if you will. Um, that's a different that's that's pretty heavy science. Um, but I think a lot of us could learn about how to ride the horse more effectively.
1: Right. I think that's a good point. We have an English professor who, uh, and you know we've got a younger faculty, which I think is also to our strategic advantage in terms of their familiarity with mm-hmm. the tools or willingness to kind of do exactly what you're describing, right? Maybe not feel quite as threatened by it versus how do we integrate this into our teaching and learning. And she's really through our Center for Excellence in Teaching and Scholarship when the chat GPT things came out. I think that's a good idea, Bob, of how across disciplines as it emerges, how we prepare our students to use it, but also to be reflective on how they're using it. Right. And that's some of what how we're integrating e-portfolios in a way to to think about even some of the ethical questions uh, around it. I, I, I you're right. Versus some of the the institutions different from us that will be on the cutting edge of developing it, it's more just navigating all this change that AI will create in ways that are maybe a little bit easier to navigate or more seamless because we have been developing out not just the the hard skills but the reflective element of what it mm-hmm. means uh, in as professionals as humans uh, asking yeah. the big questions.
0: Well, you know, uh, again, this example. Um, one of their most rapidly growing departments is philosophy, because everybody <laughs> who takes the AI <laughs> program has to take ethics of AI. Yes, and, um, right? so uh, they've had a boom um, in what was a back, with yeah. declining backwater of education, if you will. Um, That's great. By the way, not, not what I endorse as, as being declining. I think there's lots to be learned yeah. in these areas, right. but. Um, so, you know, I think there's a lot there. I think it's very attractive for people too, just in terms yes. of their growth um, mm-hmm. and almost at any level. Um, you know, one of the things I heard, for example, is they'd have students um, go in and and the writing assignment was not to write. It, it, I think it, I can't remember what course it was. They actually had the students get ChatGPT to write and then they critiqued its essay. Yes,
1: yes um, that's what those professors, yep.
0: yep. Trying and to, so exactly. that's a very. You know, how do I, and by the way, then how do I get it to do better? Right. Um, It is spooky, by the way, when you give a computer the exact same instructions and it gives you back a different answer every time. Hmm. Um, that I did not expect when we were doing this experiment, running our numbers through and generating reports. Um, You couldn't tell how long it would be. I mean, there's just all kinds of parameters for it's like, wait a second. Why does this one look dramatically different than that one? When I gave it literally the exact same instructions um so yeah there's a lot to be learned out there yes um all right i I apologize
1: i have to get on another call at 145 and i need to make a call a quick call before that
0: not a problem do you have any
1: final topics you want to explore just i think
0: i think that's it you've been incredibly generous with your time and your thoughts